This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as financial advice. All views expressed on this podcast are solely the opinions of the host and or any guests that we might have from time to time. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow a particular investing strategy. Hello, you sexy sat stackers, and welcome to the latest episode of the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but the wind is absolutely howling out there. I mean, it's been a gorgeous day. It's in the mid-70s, which is, you know, nice and comfortable. Uh, but the wind is just roaring. Right now, the base, the, the the sustained wind is about 20 miles an hour, which is like 32 and a half kilometers an hour, and gusting to, to who knows what. Anyway, I can hear it from in here the in, inside the studio whenever we get a good a good wind uh gust so if you hear the building creaking uh that's because it's blowing out there i guess we just had a cold front move through which is odd because it's warming up but i guess uh after the cold front passes through usually you got you have some low pressure left behind so the air rushes in to to backfill that or however that works this is not a meteorology podcast though so i digress Last week, I led off by asking, did you buy the dip? And of course, if you're DCAing along with us every Wednesday, then you did. Currently, the Bitcoin price is almost fully, quote unquote, recovered since. Although, you know, the Bitcoin price was was on a run up. It, You know, if you remember just like two months ago, Bitcoin was lucky to be in the $30,000 range. So it seemed kind of funny looking at Bitcoin at uh, $39,000, $40,000 and people thinking, oh, no, Bitcoin crashed. And of course, zooming out. The almost $50,000 spike in anticipation of the ETF approval was just a short blip, an outlier, so to speak. But the big picture trend remains up and to the right. And of course, if you remember, I've always said that if history repeats or even rhymes, that we would be looking at about $45,000 to $48,000 Bitcoin at the halving. Of course, I'm not in this to predict the price of Bitcoin other than to say that it's going up forever, Laura, forever. But we're way ahead of the game if things keep trending the way they have been. So every cycle is a little different. Of course, Bitcoin always does what Bitcoin does. That's why we DCA instead of trying to trade because nobody knows when Bitcoin's going to go on a run. Nobody knows when it's going to tank. You know, they've always said that Bitcoin makes most of its gains in like 10 days out of the year. So if you're farting around trying to trade Bitcoin, you're going to hose yourself. And so... One of the reasons we're here is because today is Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. And if you've been following us for any length of time, you know that every Wednesday is DCA Wednesday. I'm getting ahead of myself. So I do want to remind you of one thing. For the last two weeks, I've mentioned that two weeks ago, Apple started switching off automatic downloads. If you haven't listened to five episodes of a podcast in the last two weeks of a specific podcast, for example, this podcast, if you are only listening once every Wednesday, Uh, then you've only listened twice in the last two weeks. And that's not even half of the five. I know we do math really well in this show, don't we? We get our math on every Wednesday. Anyway, I digress. Most likely you have not listened to five episodes of the Bitcoin Bulletin podcast in the last two weeks. And if that's the case and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then Apple has started switching off automatic downloads. So if you haven't already double-checked that your automatic downloads are enabled, that is a really great way to feed the, al- feed the algorithm monster. And if you've been having a hard time finding this podcast, it could be that your automatic downloads are, are switched off. And if that's the case, then when you go look at your podcast menu on what you have next, 
um, your your queue, your your podcast lineup. Uh, we won't show up, and if we don't show up, you won't get to listen. So if you double check to make sure that if if you are listening to uh, if you are listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and you had automatic downloads enabled, uh, you'll want to re-enable those. Okay, before we take a deep dive into the news, let's take a quick look at the vital statistics. At the time of this recording, Bitcoin is tick-tock, tick-tocking along at block 828,285. That puts us just 11,715 blocks away from the next halving. That's still looking like that's going to occur on April 20th of this year. So uh, we are... We're closing in on that fast. It's the last day of January. So basically have February, March, and part of April before the next halving. And if it time flies, anything like it has in the last couple months, uh, that's coming up faster than you know. And if you're looking forward to going to one of those Bitcoin halving parties, even if it's just a celebration at your local Bitcoin meetup, you know, two months, two and a half months isn't a whole lot of time to plan. So especially if you've got to book an airline ticket or a hotel room or something, if you're going to something really cool like the Bitcoin halving party in El Salvador, or uh, wherever you may be choosing to celebrate the halving. If you have not gone through a Bitcoin halving before, Bitcoin halving is kind of like, it's kind of like watching the ball drop in New York City on New Year's New Year's Eve. Uh, you know, we all get together and we count down the blocks, whether we do it in person or we do it in spirit. Of course, in 2020, for the 2020 halving, most of those celebrations were canceled. Uh, we had online meetups uh, with Bitcoin Magazine, who they've kind of, Fallen out of favor with with uh, falling out of good graces with a lot of Bitcoiners recently, but they had a live stream. A couple other people had live streams going down. Of course, you don't know exactly when the the having is going to occur because it doesn't occur at a fixed time. It's going to occur at block eight hundred and forty thousand. And of course, I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, you know, blocks come in when they come in. That ten minute block time is just an average. But let's get back to what we were talking about. We are still at block eight hundred twenty eight thousand. 285 and Bitcoin is ringing in at a US dollar value of $43,420 for Bitcoin and one stinky fiat dollar will currently purchase you 2,303 sats and that is about 200 and what 219 sats fewer than than we purchased per dollar last week so you know, it's fun to watch the price go up and watch the U.S. dollar value, the euro value, the fiat value of your stack increase while most of the world is still on a fiat standard. But at the same time, if you're trying to stack as many sats as you can uh, before you get priced out, watching the number of sats you can purchase per dollar, per euro, per peso decline, uh, it, it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I'm trying to stack as furiously as possible. We're doing so $20 at a time here on the Bitcoin Bulletin podcast. Hopefully. If you have the means to do so, you're stacking more aggressively in person. Uh, but nonetheless, one cuck buck, as Marty Bent likes to say, will purchase you 2,303 sats right now. And that is going to trend to zero as well as Bitcoin goes towards infinity. All right. For uh, those of you paying attention, Bitcoin's market cap is up about 100 billion since last week. It ringing in at a Market cap of 851.6 billion. Of course, while that is up dramatically from last week, it's pretty much in line with where we've been for the last two months. Other than three weeks ago when we were on the eve of the Bitcoin ETF approval, when the, the price pumped to almost $50,000 and Bitcoin's market cap was closing in on $1 trillion. Other than that, uh, you have to go back to the very beginning of December 
to see a market cap or a Bitcoin price higher than it is today. And that was just a, a blip as well, because you go to the DCA Wednesday before that, and Bitcoin only had a market cap of $741 billion. Uh, and then the month before that was in the $690 billion range. So market cap's been trending up and to the right, with the exception of the outlier on January 10th, when, uh, when we got that pump when in anticipation of ETFs. Of course, if you look at any of the charts of Bitcoin's prices over history, all those blips, they, they, tend to, they tend to go away. If you look at the lifetime chart right now, you see the double top from 2021, from the 2020 halving cycle. And four years before that, the big blip was a single big blip when Bitcoin made its $20,000 all-time high. And that has shrunk down to where it's, uh, you know, only about half as high, not even half as high as the, uh, as the most recent all-time high on the chart. And then you can't even see the 2016 halving bull run. It, it, it's, maybe it's a ripple, but four years ago, the 2016 halving looked like 2020 does on the charts now. So as Bitcoin goes up into the right, those peaks and valleys are going to get compressed. And when Bitcoin's like, a, you know, 500000 or a million dollars, you're barely even going to be able to see the 2021 uh, all-time high, let alone the, the uh, 2017 all-time high. And that little blip at $913 billion on January 10th is going to be eclipsed when we're talking $2 trillion, $4 trillion, $10 trillion, whatever Bitcoin's market cap ultimately ends up while we're still talking on this podcast. For those of you who still value your wealth in shiny yellow rocks, Bitcoin got a little more expensive. It will currently cost you 21.4 ounces of your Peter Schiff bucks, your little one ounce gold coins to purchase just one Bitcoin. Last week, you had a reprieve. If you wanted to cash in gold, you could have done so for 19 and a half ounces and purchased yourself a whole Bitcoin. Uh, but again, as I mentioned with the market cap, in general, 21.4 ounces of gold per Bitcoin is up and to the right with gold trending down into the down into the right, and you know, as it trends to zero in Bitcoin terms, because you know the twenty, the uh, twenty three point five ounces of gold that it would occur cost you to purchase one Bitcoin on that January tenth uh, pump, you know, was an outlier because the week before that it would have cost you twenty one point three ounces of gold, and in the end of November it would have cost you only eighteen point seven ounces of gold. In October you could have purchased a Bitcoin for only seventeen point seven ounces of gold. In the beginning of October, you could have purchased a whole Bitcoin for only 14.3 ounces of gold. And eventually, we're going to be talking about pounds of gold, not ounces, as I've always predicted. In fact, I say, and I don't make a lot of predictions, but this is what I'm standing by. By the end of 2024, we're going to be talking about pounds of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin, not ounces. Uh, and I don't think that's a very bold prediction because as the price of Bitcoin begins to pump and the price of gold, even if gold is on a terror, it's at new all-time highs and a terror, you know, it... It went up from what eighteen hundred dollars to two thousand, which is, you know, it's that's that's two hundred dollar gain. That's almost ten percent. But wow, you know, ten percent. If you look at Bitcoin's chart, ten percent. It, it gained ten percent this week. All right, I keep getting I keep getting ahead of myself here. So as they say, you get you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. And if you're a gold bug right now, that price is twenty one point four ounces of gold per Bitcoin. For those of you who value your wealth in pizza, one Bitcoin will purchase you 2,428 large pepperoni pizzas from Papa John's as pizza trends to zero in Bitcoin terms as well. That's 211 pizzas more than one Bitcoin would have purchased you just last week. Of course, there was the pizza blip on January 10th as well. But again, that's an outlier. Pizza continues to trend to zero in Bitcoin terms. Or if you prefer to think of it as food security, you can purchase one large pepperoni pizza a day for almost six and a half years for just 
one Bitcoin. Of course, by the time you get around to spending, purchasing what would be that last pizza six and a half years from now, who knows what Bitcoin will be worth. So you might find yourself in one of those situations where the number of Satoshis you have in your stack keeps trending down, but the number of pizzas you can purchase keeps trending up as the fiat value of Bitcoin increases. Uh, that still be a fun metric to keep watching. I can only imagine what we're going to be talking about four years, eight years, 10 years from now. All right. The mempool is looking pretty bloated, not quite as bad as it was last Wednesday. Last Wednesday in Clark Moody's mempool, there were 128 blocks worth of transactions pending, and there's still 112 blocks worth of transactions pending, which are or it's quite a few. However, the fees that it will cost you to, con to uh, conduct a transaction on chain, well, they've trended down depending on where you get your data. Last week, Clark Moody was estimating that if you wanted to guarantee that an on-chain transaction was included in the next block, it was going to cost you 68 sats per V-byte in fees. Currently, he's estimating that you can pull that off for 44 sats per V-byte and that a fee of just 26 sats per V-byte will get mined in a day. He's still claiming that six sats per V-byte will get your transaction mined within a week, although I would not bet on that. Fortunately, most of us are using wallets that enable you to change that fee with replace by fee if your transaction doesn't get mined. Either way, if you have a priority transaction that you want to guarantee is mined right away, a fee of 44 sats per V-byte isn't too bad. And mempool.space has given you an even cheaper price, slightly more expensive than what they were saying last week when they were saying you could guarantee that your transaction would be mined in the next block or two for 27 sats per V-byte. Currently, they're estimating that will cost you 29 sats per V-byte. That's about $1.76, which is pretty cheap. I mean, that's not that's not a big fee at all for a high priority transaction. Of course, they're saying a lower priority transaction, a medium priority transaction, they recommend a fee of 27 sats per V-byte and a lower no priority transaction, they recommend a fee of 26 sats per V-byte, which is the same thing Clark Moody is recommending to guarantee your transactions mined in a day uh, and not a whole lot different than 29 sats per V-byte. So with the price of Bitcoin where it's at, we're talking a few pennies between a high priority transaction and a low priority transaction. Fortunately, more and more plebs are using the Lightning Network and Lightning transactions are still almost free. They cost you a handful of Satoshis, period. Maybe 29 sats instead of 29 sats per V-byte. Um, but, you know, I think we're getting to the point where we're already to the point where I never use on-chain transactions unless I'm moving Bitcoin to my hardware wallet. Uh, the last time I purchased anything with Bitcoin is when I bought uh, coffee from the Good Beans in El Salvador. Salvadoran coffee is fantastic, plebs, if you haven't tried it. If you don't know anything about El Salvador or their coffee or their history of being a coffee-producing nation, uh, scroll back through our episodes because we did an interview over an hour with Gabe from Good Beans. Uh, and he sp we spoke about Bitcoin. We spoke about Mayan culture. But predominantly, we spoke about coffee. Uh, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the last time I purchased anything with Bitcoin, and that was using the Lightning Network because you can pay by Lightning. So that transaction was basically free. Uh, and so we're already at the point where we're only moving large large amounts of Bitcoin or, or, or conducting huge transactions on chain. Eventually, I think it's only going to be central banks or big corporations moving their treasuries around on chain. You know, we're not going to we're not going to be using even if we're not using Lightning, even if we even if we're using one of the side chains or drive chains that, that are coming out in the future, whatever the tech is, five, 10 years from now, I think governments, corporations, Central banks, banks will be moving large amounts, billions of dollars on chain, and us plebs will be us plebs will be using a side chain or some other layer two solution. Uh, I already am, and uh, 
you know, even if lightning doesn't improve radically, it's, it's already, it's already incredibly useful. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at where the internet was, where email was, when email was only 15 years old, nobody was using it. You know, college computer science professors were using it. IT wasn't even really a thing. Uh, and then we had AOL come out, you know, in the 90s. And that's when your grandma got her first email address. And she's probably still using AOL. I didn't even know it was still around, but apparently it still is. Um, and then, you know, then email was included in your phones, et cetera. And it just became easy to use. And eventually, as Bitcoin goes more mainstream, it's going to be more integrated and, uh, and there will be more research and development put into second layer solutions. And maybe iPhone will have its own second layer solution and Android phones will have their own second layer solution, but either way we'll be, we'll be conducting, uh, on layer two or layer three instead of the, the, the base chain. And so those, those expensive transaction fees will, will not matter to the average pleb unless you're trying to move your stack, you know, you're giving a chunk of your, of your, uh, of your stack away to, uh, to your grandchildren. Or, you know, buying a Citadel. Who knows? I'm getting distracted again. That metric that you know I like to follow, the one that's been my favorite metric for the entire history of this podcast, Bitcoin's 24-hour average transaction rate is proving itself once again. You know, last week we saw a big dip in on-chain transaction volume, and that corresponded with a decrease in price. And this week, transaction volume's way up and price is back up. Last week, we were looking at an average of 4.31 seconds. 4.31 transactions per second on chain. And right now, transactions are zooming in with an average of 5.90 transactions per second. So that metric still holds, even though Ordinal's inscriptions, BRC20 token stamps, what have you, has kind of warped it as far as the overall number, the size, the number of transactions per, coming, per second coming in. If you've been listening to the podcast since before the Ordinal's and inscriptions debacle, since before Taproot, you know that anytime we had more than, say, I used to say pi, more than 3.14 transactions per second, Bitcoin price was usually trending up. And then when it was under 3.14 transactions per second, price was trending down. Obviously, if we only saw 3.14 transactions per second right now, the price would probably be tanking if that metric remains true. Um, and again, that's not anybody's official TA. It's just something that I have noticed in the two and a half years I've been doing this podcast. And I just find it interesting, find it intriguing. And hopefully you do too, because... I'm going to continue to talk about it every week when we uh, go over the statistics on the Bitcoin Bullion podcast. Speaking of statistics, speaking of on-chain transactions, it's been about two weeks since the last Bitcoin mining difficulty adjustment. As you know, the Bitcoin Core protocol adjusts the difficulty that it takes for a miner to find a block every 2016 blocks, which in theory in human time frame is about every two weeks. And we are coming up on the next difficulty adjustment. That's 291 blocks away, and depending on where you get your data, uh, it's going to be a whopper of an increase, anywhere from 6.55 to 7.2%, and that's looking like that's going to occur on February 2nd, so about two days from now. That is because blocks are screaming in right now. They're averaging 9 minutes and 21 seconds, way faster than the 10 minutes that the protocol aims for, more than 20 seconds, 25 seconds faster than last week when they were screaming in at 9.46 transactions per second. Of course, most of that is because, as I mentioned in the last two episodes, we had that big cold front move through. It hell froze over, so to speak. It got really cold in Texas. It got really cold everywhere. Got, uh, you know, if you pay attention to pop culture, you saw Taylor Swift wearing that big fluffy parka with her boyfriend's jersey painted on it uh, for the playoff game. 
because it was just it was the coldest one of the coldest NFL games ever played. Uh, and as a result, big miners everywhere, particularly in Texas, but also in Tennessee, Kentucky, up and down the East Coast, have load balancing agreements where they agree to shut off when there's high electricity demand so that electricity can go to heating homes in the winter or cooling homes in the summer. As a result, at one point in time, almost 25% of the network hash rate was switched off. And of course, it's nice out over most of the country right now. So those miners are all back on. Hash rate's picked up. It's picked up in earnest. And as a result, we're looking like we're going to get a relatively large difficulty adjustment. And that is just normal. That's the way Bitcoin rolls. And that's also one of the cool things about the innovation of plebs, of the innovation of miners, even the non-pleb miner, the corporate miner, especially in this case, where they've they've worked out ways uh, to help purchase cheaper energy or to um, get paid to not mine at all, to help benefit, you know, mining grids that are that maybe don't quite have the capacity for the the surging populations in these states like Texas. Uh, so Bitcoin's doing what it's doing and plebs are being innovative and taking advantage of cheap energy where they can find it and however they can get it. And then that's really cool. That's, that's awesome. Okay. Real quick. I want to thank those of you who are listening on your favorite podcasting 2.0 app, such as fountain. Podcasting 2.0 allows you to support your favorite podcast through the value for value model, where you can stream sats while you're listening on a minute per minute basis. You can decide, I think this podcast is worth a Satoshi a minute or 10 sats per minute. Just set it, forget it and stream. Or you can send a shout out. You can boost the podcast, you know, a one-time smash support where you send a, a message, a shout out, but it's a lightning transaction. So you can send some Satoshis to show your support. And we do have a boost to read. It's from Leggy, longtime supporter of the podcast, at Leggy, L-E-G-G-Y on Twitter. And Leggy boosted us 2,222 sats and said, row of ducks. Thank you, Leggy. It is always nice to have your ducks in a row. And this actually reminds me of a funny story from a long time ago. When I was younger, even when I wasn't younger, my family was very involved in the exchange student program, AFS. AFS is one of the largest exchange student programs in the United States. Uh, and we used to actually joke that AFS stood for another fat student, not because Europeans and foreign students are fat, but because they are skinny and they would come to the United States and they tended to be, they tended to be way skinnier than all the other high school students that they, you know, all the Americans that they were in class with. I mean, Europeans stood out because they were, they were just in a lot better shape than, than Americans. But while they were here, they would tend to become Americanized in many ways. For example, there was a Japanese exchange student I knew who got a really good tan. And apparently that really pissed her family off because in her culture at the time where she lived in Japan, having a tan meant you were a prostitute. Apparently you, you didn't want to have a tan. And so she went home with a tan and with a perm uh, and a little bit heavier because one of the ways that Europeans tend to get Americanized when they come over here for college or high school is they tend to eat our junk food and they tend to get a lot, a lot heavier. So we used to joke that AFS stood for another fat student um, because we would take your healthy European bodies and ruin them before we sent you back, back home after your year here in the United States. Anyway, I'm getting off on a yet another tangent within a tangent. One day I was talking to a friend who we were hosting from Germany who remains essentially family to us. His name is Carl. And I don't remember what we were talking about, but he was brand new. It was the first week or two he'd been in the United States. So his English was really rusty. It was to the point where he, every time we would say something, he'd run upstairs to his room and grab his dictionary, flip through and see what we were saying and then run back downstairs and answer. Of course, by the time he left, he spoke English like he'd been living here for his whole life. Um, 
but he had a lot to learn. And because, you know, we have slang, everyone has their slang, their, their sayings, their meanings that, that are just weird. And the English language can be weird anyway, because it's bits and pieces of other languages woven together as, as many languages are. Um, but anyway, Carl and I were talking about something and I was, must've been excited because there's an exclamation in English, uh, where you say, holy cow. And I said, holy cow. And Carl hit the floor laughing. He was just rolling. I mean, the rest of the year he was here, he'd be like, holy cow. Uh, he thought that was really amusing because the concept of a holy cow to him was just freaking hysterical. Along those lines, my wife sent me something while I was doing the podcast notes. And it's from Facebook. And I guess there's a Facebook group called the Potentially Inappropriate Meme Bray for Historians and Literaries. And it was discussing... Uh, the different ways to say something like it's the bee's knees in various languages. In fact, it says it's the different ways to say something like it's a bee's knees in various languages are incredible. And that bee's knees are not a phrase that I really use a whole lot, but some people do. And it's the bee's knees means it's really cool, right? And bees don't have knees, obviously. Uh, so it probably sounds completely ridiculous to a non-English speaker, like holy cow. Uh, so this post goes on to list those ways that other people in other languages say something along the lines of the bee's knees. And it lists, uh, in U.S. English, of course, it's the bee's knees. In U.K. English, it would be, it's the dog's bollocks. In Australian English, apparently, it's the duck's nuts. In Chinese, I'm assuming uh, this is a loose translation, but it says the, the equivalent expression would be, it's the cow's vagina. In Spanish, I guess the equivalent phrase would be, it's the cock with onions. I'm assuming rooster and onions. Uh, in Dutch, apparently the phrase is, translates to, it's the salmon's little nose. So like a little nose of a fish. Uh, if you're from Holland, if you're from the Netherlands, maybe you can uh, DM us and let us know. Um, but that's really amusing. In Finnish, apparently it would translate into it's more than a hundred rabbits. And in French, the equivalent expression is it's, it's the baby Jesus in velvet underpants. <laughs> that might actually be my favorite and a lot closer to the phrase, holy cow. Uh, not that cows and the baby Jesus are similar, although there may or may not have been cows in the manger. I guess it was probably not cows since it was in Bethlehem and might have been the ox, right? It was ox. The ox and lamb kept time. Pa pum pum. All right, that's enough nonsense. Uh, but speaking of our geographic distribution of listeners and how you might say the bee's knees wherever you are, our geographic distribution of listeners for the podcast has remained unchanged this week. As usual, the top 10 are number one, the United States, where more than half of you are listening, and probably some of you use the term the bee's knees. Number two remains Argentina. So again, muchos gracias, amigos, in Argentina. Number three remains Germany, where apparently holy cow is funnier than it is here. So danke schön, mein Freunds, in Deutschland. Number, set, number four remains Luxembourg. Again, danke schön, mein Freunds, in Luxembourg, or Morian. Number five remains Canada. Nobody explained what they say in Canada. Do they say the bee's knees, or do they say the dog's bollocks? Or uh, I guess again, French Canada. Uh, the uh, baby Jesus in velvet underpants. So whatever you say in Canada, thank you for listening. Hopefully the weather's a little nicer up there because it certainly is nicer down here. Number six remains Spain. So muchos gracias, amigos, in Spain. And uh, I guess it's the cock with onions. To those of you listening 
in Spain. Number seven remains Colombia. So muchas gracias, amigos, in Colombia. Number eight remains Sweden, where I still don't know how to say hello or thank you in Swedish. I guess I'm going to have to take that upon myself and learn it unless one of you reaches out by a DM, DMs me on Twitter at BTC Bulletin Pod, lets me know how to say hi, hello, thank you to our friends in Sweden, because there are a decent number of you listening because you're the number eight country in the top 10. Number nine remains the United Kingdom, where hopefully you think this podcast is the dog's bollocks. So thank you to those of you listening in the UK. Number 10 remains Venezuela. Again, muchas gracias, amigos, in Venezuela. And thank you to all of you listening, regardless of where you're listening from. It's really, really cool to have such an international audience. Despite the fact that I'm here in the United States and this is an English language podcast, it's cool that so many of you are are from countries where English is not the native language. All right, on to the news. As we mentioned, the price is what a lot of people are talking about, and the price is back up. Although some people still consider it a crash since for like a day we were at like an hour, we were at 49,000 on the eve of the ETFs being proposed. As you remember, I said last week, every time the price of Bitcoin drops, it is a second chance for you to reach your stacking goal, that goal that you were worried you were going to miss. You know, Bitcoin's already up to uh, where we're only getting 2,300 some sats uh, per dollar instead of 2,500 sats per dollar. So if you took advantage of buying the dip, which of course you did if you stacked with us on DCA Wednesday, but uh, if you if you had a little bit extra dry powder and you and you bought that dip, uh, that's what it's really all about. Out there in the FUD news, people have been discussing European Union Bitcoin regulation regarding ESG regulations. You know, kind of like they tried to do here in the United States by saying Bitcoin boils the oceans. Apparently, the EU is planning some sort of Bitcoin mining crackdown. Being in Crypto.com reported the EU could be planning a Bitcoin mining crackdown in 2025. The European Commission is reportedly planning to label Bitcoin as environmentally harmful and a threat to EU energy security. The EC's proposed measures include carbon taxes and the authority for the ECB to create ESG rules around Bitcoin investments. So not just mining, but what you who can and cannot invest in Bitcoin. The article goes on to say on January 31st, crypto environmentalist and venture capital investor Daniel Batten shared a section of a report by the European Commission highlighting its plans to curtail crypto. It continues to say, according to a posted section of the report, it paves the way for a de facto EU ban on Bitcoin mining in 2025. Quoting the report, quote, while we were sleeping, or I guess quoting, uh, not the report, quoting Daniel Batten, quote, while we were sleeping, the European Commission has been creating a report which they plan to label Bitcoin environmentally harmful, a threat to the EU energy security and a haven for financial criminals, unquote. Sound familiar? It proposes additional measures to curtail mining activities. These include carbon taxes, the ability of the EU members to shut off power to BCT miners for, quote, energy security reasons. Additionally, it will formally label BTC as harmful to the environment. Yeah, sucks to be a miner in, in a Bitcoin miner in, in the EU if that happens. But you know what, what, that, what happens if that happens? Your miners are going to move to Texas and you're just going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the revenue. You're going to miss out on the load balancing. Uh, you're going to miss out on the benefits. But you're not going to be able to stop Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you don't need a Bitcoin ETF to buy Bitcoin. You don't even need Coinbase or Kraken or, or any exchange to buy Bitcoin. Back in the day, you used to go to a Bitcoin meetup. Even the first Bitcoin exchange, uh, what was it called? It was in New York City. And it was like an old-fashioned stock market where people stand up and they shout 
you know, I've got Bitcoin for sale and everybody waves their offers, you know, like, like are on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I don't remember what it was called, but it was like one of the first Bitcoin exchanges and it was still face to face, old school. Um, you know, that's the best way to buy Bitcoin because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's KYC free. Nobody knows necessarily who you are or where that Bitcoin's going. And so you, it's Bitcoin the way Bitcoin was intended to be used peer to peer, like Satoshi said in the white paper you know, using it as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic currency. So the only thing you can do by regulating Bitcoin is regulating yourself out of Bitcoin. Uh, and, you know, the EU has been decent for Bitcoiners in many ways. For example, you know, my friends in Germany, they don't have to pay a capital gains tax or many European countries don't have to pay a capital gains tax if you've had your Bitcoin at least a year, I believe it is. Uh, but those days may be coming to an end. And the EU has often been more socialist, more heavily regulated than the United States. You know, we have a specific constitution here that that in theory pro prohibits the things the government can do so maybe it's not that we don't have as many power hungry politicians here it's just that they have more hoops to jump through but of course you know the the old saying used to be the US innovates Europe regulates and China copies and that kind of holds true uh, when we're talking about bitcoin regulation speaking of bitcoin investment, the Bitcoin ETF ads continue to roll out now that the Bitcoin ETFs are live. And along those lines, it used to be against the policy to regulate, to, to advertise any kind of Bitcoin services on Google. You'd never see an ad on any of the Google products for, for Bitcoin. Apparently, Google is changing its policy to at least allow spot Bitcoin ETFs to advertise. Uh, if you remember in 2018, Google banned all Bitcoin advertising. Someone, I don't remember what podcast it was, went on to point out that BlackRock owns 6% of Google. So if BlackRock is one of the majority investors in, in Google, 6% doesn't seem like a lot. But when you figure the average person out there owns a billionth of a percent, uh, to actually get a 1% ownership stake is a lot. To have a 10% ownership stake is oftentimes a controlling interest in a company. So 6% ownership stake is a big, important ownership stake. They certainly get a lot of sway over Google. So it would make sense that uh, they're going to force or would pressure Google to allow them to advertise their products. Either way, I think these ETFs are going to be a major step, a major tool in quote-unquote normalizing Bitcoin with the normies. Do not underestimate the power of seeing Bitcoin commercials, you know, the, seeing Bitcoin commercials will have on the masses. If, if and when they run an ETF commercial on the Super Bowl, there's a reason that Bud Light's trying to make their big comeback on the Super Bowl because commercials work. Celebrity endorsements work. Advertising works. The average person out there just wants to be cool. They're going to do whatever Oprah Winfrey or whatever Taylor Swift tells them to do. And seeing these commercials, even if it that doesn't make people run out and purchase Bitcoin, it's going to mean that, hey, look, Bitcoin is a real product. My bank is selling Bitcoin. My financial advisor is selling Bitcoin. I could put Bitcoin in my IRA now. It's not just for buying drugs on the dark web like I, I thought it was. It's not just for... It's not just so that Jamie Dimon can use something other than his bank to launder Jeffrey Epstein's money or to launder money for the drug cartels. You know, maybe it's 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 just an it's just another thing that might not pop in their head that it's the thing, but if it pops into their head that it is a normal thing, just like anything else in their life, then maybe they will learn about it and then it will become the thing in their mind. That being said, apparently Franklin Templeton Fund has weak hands. They are not closing out their ETF, but they have removed their laser eyes. The speculation on this is probably because they're planning on offering S-Coin, Alt-Coin ETFs as well. And the laser eye, the laser eye till 100K thing is, you know, a symbolic of Bitcoin, not crypto. 
So who knows? Or it just didn't appeal to their average person. They did it for fun. But for whatever the case may be, it didn't even last two weeks. Uh, if you do, if you don't remember, Franklin Templeton had their, their Twitter profile, their Benjamin Franklin logo. They, they put laser eyes on it on Twitter when the ETFs were, were approved. Speaking of ETFs, another big question is, have the GBTC outflows slowed? I think the answer is yes, they have, at least for now. I mean, it would be reasonable to believe that more selling is in the cards, especially, you know, as the price runs up and people start eyeing profit taking, people that are trading, like the day trader mentality, or even people that are still holding Bitcoin, that they're holding it at a loss. Once they're in profit, maybe some of those will say, oh, now is the time for me to dump my, my GBTC finally. So it does, however, seem like the worst is over, at least in terms of massive dumps. Like last week when we saw the FTX GBTC liquidated, a billion dollars of FTX's GBTC being liquidated. And that was certainly, I think, responsible in part for that pullback from the ETF approval hype down to, you know, the $39,000, $38,000 range. However, as always, there is potential more Bitcoin to be dumped. Uh, for example, the New York Times ran a headline just yesterday. German authorities seized $2 billion worth of Bitcoin. Uh, the police described the transfer of funds as the most extensive seizure of Bitcoin by law enforcement in the Federal Republic of Germany. So, and then uh, the, just four hours ago, Coindesk ran the headline, UK police seized nearly $1.8 billion of Bitcoin from investment fraud in China. I guess they quote the Financial Times on that. A London court heard of the seizure Tuesday as part of the trial of Jian Wen, who was accused of laundering Bitcoin on behalf of her former employee, Yadi Zhang, FT reported. So the point being, there's other Bitcoin out there that is eventually going to get dumped on the market. I heard the Cafe Bitcoin podcast today. Someone accused the U.S. government of having weak hands because they were liquidating their Bitcoin. I'm not an attorney, but I do have experience a little bit with seizure, um, civil forfeiture laws. And in general, in the United States, the government is required, required to dispose of assets. It's not a matter of weak hands. If they seize cash, that's a different thing. But anything other than U.S. dollars, they have to dump. The only time that the government can take your property of any kind and keep it for the public good are in cases of imminent domain. And usually they're seizing land because they want to build a road, although sometimes they'll seize ridiculous things. Like I remember a case in Phoenix, actually it was Mesa, Arizona, which is East Valley, Phoenix, part of Phoenix in Arizona. And they seized a Ma and Pa drugstore because Walgreens wanted to put a drugstore there. And so they said, well, it's in the public good to have a bigger nationwide drugstore there which is beyond arguably bad to replace a mom and pa with a, with a, with a chain and, and say that's a, that's in the public interest, but they did, or at least they did uh, until they had that overturned in court. Point being imminent domain is a specific law where you can seize property and use it in the public interest, building a road, building a Walgreens, whatever the case may be. But if they seize your property because you committed a crime, they have to auction it. Uh, there was a police department in the city where I lived that in like the 90s, they seized a big blue monster truck. You know, monster trucks were a thing in the 80s and 90s in the United States where they take these trucks and they jack them up to they're super tall and they put gigantic wheels on them. And they were popular with drug dealers because they were popular with the, you know, the big truck compensating for something crowd. Drug dealers are often little guys, little Napoleon complex guys that, that have that kind of complex. Uh, nonetheless, they were popular with drug dealers and they had busted a drug dealer and they seized this monster truck and they were able to keep it for like a year. 
and they painted it up with this truck seized by a drug dealer for whatever in uh, whatever information on it and they drove it around and they used it for like their their drug abuse resistance education program dare in the united states uh to to uh help uh promote the whole just say no to drugs thing but ultimately the the city was forced to liquidate it because they couldn't keep it permanently because it was a seized asset and by law it had to be disposed of once it was disposed of at auction they can the government can keep the cash but they couldn't keep the truck and so, and that's a good thing, right? Because if you have something neat and shiny, you don't want the government just to be able to just take it and say, oh, it's in the public interest that we're going to seize your, your car. It's in the public interest we're going to seize your house. It's in the public interest we're going to seize your boat. It's in the public interest we're going to seize your Bitcoin just because they can keep it. Arguably, if they can take your house and, or your Bitcoin and sell it for US dollars, they still benefit. So there's still incentive there. And that whole thing is, that whole thing is just another ball of wax to speak of. Speaking of the bee's knees, right? Ball of wax, another, another idiom. But regardless of whether civil 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 asset forfeiture is 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 horrible as if it's a if it's a violation of your rights or not, and it is. But whether it whether it whether it is or not, the current way it works is that they have to dispose of the asset. So any Bitcoin seized by the United States government until the law changes is going to be disposed of. Likewise, the Bitcoin seized by Germany and the Bitcoin seized by the UK will probably be dumped as well. When it is, that's $2 billion of the Bitcoin that's going to go on the market. That will obviously have some sort of effect on the price. Obviously, the more mainstream Bitcoin becomes, the less and less of an effect that will have. For example, the billion dollars of the Bitcoin plus, I think it was $2 billion total, $1 billion from FTX alone, uh, that was dumped on the market. It, it crashed the price of Bitcoin. And by crashed, it only took it down to where it was before the pump. Uh, and what, for less than a week? Here we are a week later, and the price is, uh, is higher than it had been all month. Maybe not, maybe not 50, but man, that was, that was, that was, that was euphoria. You know, that was, that was maybe an overshoot for where we should be because, you know, people were excited. And just like when we go on our bull run after the halving, eventually the price of Bitcoin gets too high. You know, we get the euphoria phase where everyone's buying and selling Bitcoin. Even people that have no clue about it, you're going to start getting tips on buying Bitcoin from your Uber driver, from little old ladies at the mall, what have you. And then, you know, the price of Bitcoin's overvalued and it, and then you get the, the retracement. You know, you get the, you get the big pullback. So that's kind of what this was on a smaller scale. We had the hype around the ETF and then we came back to, we, well, we're now we're back to probably what is a little more reasonable. And then with all the outflows of GBTC finally getting unlocked, all these people that had billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin locked up at grayscale that wanted out, they've wanted out for years and they got their exit and they took it. And even so, even when it was a billion, $2 billion of the Bitcoin, it affected the price of Bitcoin for less than a week. Speaking of prices, a lot of people are talking about the Biden administration trying to take victory laps on Twitter, et cetera, this week, yesterday and last day or two, tweeting that prices are coming down and that basically that they've declared victory over inflation. However, Janet Yellen, who's technically part of the administration, kind of conflicted that when she had an interview where she said that, quote, prices are not likely to fall because, of course, she has a little bit or a little bit, either a little bit better of an understanding or is at least being a little more honest because, first of all, all government statistics are bullshit, or bullshit, BS. Um, and especially the inflation statistics. Now, they're not only manipulated in the formula that they have, and of course, remember, they even changed the formula. But even then, you know, it's in the government's best interest to lie about inflation. And so, of course, they do. And part of that lie was that inflation only got to, what, 9%. 
if you have purchased anything in the last year or two, you know that 9% is a lie. I just bought a six-pack of Diet Pepsi for $9. So it used to be you get a, a, a soda out of a vending machine for 50 cents. But either way, let's say um, the, price of, the price of a six-pack two years ago was something around $3.50. Round it up to $4. Even if it went from 4 to just 8 round the 9 down to 8 that's double. Double is not 9% for one month and 6% overall for the year, which is the, the bullshit they're trying to sell you. Uh, nothing that you have purchased has only gone up 9%. 9% would mean if you normally spend $100 on your grocery bill, you spent 109 this year. It's laughable. And that, the nice thing is even though this they lie routinely about inflation, this is a lie they can't get away with because everybody pays their car insurance, everybody buys groceries, everybody has to fuel their gas tank up. So, or if you've got to drive a Tesla, you got to, and you got to pay for electricity. And then someone else pays for the gas to make that electric electricity to charge your, your oil or coal fired Tesla. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, I'm not kidding. It's true. But, um, the point being, uh, the government is, uh, the Biden administration is out there trying to say that prices have declined. And in reality, even if you buy the government statistics, that the statistics don't even show that. They show that the rate of inflation has decreased. And what that means is instead of everything getting 9% more expensive this month, they only got 4% more expensive, which means they still got more expensive. That does not mean prices are down, uh, which is what the president of the United States is trying to gaslight everybody into believing. And I'm sure that same BS is being spewed by leaders, prime ministers, et cetera, all over the world. Speaking of which, though, there's a real TDS out there among Bitcoiners. Trump derangement syndrome is what that stands for. And I don't care if you like Trump or hate Trump. I didn't like Trump as a person before he ran for president. But when he announced for president, I was telling all my friends we're going to win. And the reason I was saying that isn't because I thought Trump was this great paragon of virtue, that he was George Washington reincarnated. I said it because the Americans were pissed off at the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. They hated both of them. And here's someone who's going to come in like a bull in the china shop, another idiom for you, non-English speakers, and just disrupt things. And for me, the best outcome in government and the best outcome in Washington is if they just get nothing done. At least if they, they aren't doing anything, it can't get any worse. So that's why I thought Trump was going to win, because I knew a lot of people felt the same way. And even if they didn't think that Donald Trump was this great guy who was going to save the world, at least he was going to F up the system uh, and nothing was going to get accomplished. Nonetheless, it does seem, and I'm going to call this out because this is the way it is, Democrats, leftists in the United States are lining up solidly against Bitcoin, lining up solidly for CBDCs. A lot of people hate Ted Cruz, but he seems to at least know what he's talking about at Bitcoin. There are no Elizabeth Warrens in the, Demo in the Republican Party. Uh, Donald Trump was, his administration was, well, it was they say it was anti-Bitcoin because at the very end, his treasury secretary tried some shenanigans, which didn't happen. And Donald Trump said he thought that if you were a patriot, use the US dollar. I don't think he was anti-Bitcoin. I think he was just ignorant. He had no clue about Bitcoin. He's rich. He's a billionaire. He, he, he poops in a solid gold toilet. He flies around in a jet that's as nice as nicer than Air Force One before he was president. Uh, you don't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't think about, he, he counts his money. He smells paper money. He doesn't, doesn't really care about Bitcoin. So he doesn't, he doesn't know about Bitcoin. He does, has, couldn't even, con, couldn't even conceptualize why you might want Bitcoin recently, however, and we spoke about this last week, he's come out and said he's against CBDCs. And that the reason he is is because he was ignorant and because Vivek Ramaswamy 
told him about it and sat down and, and schooled him on it. And now he sees the light. Immediately, half of Bitcoin Twitter comes out and goes, he's lying. He's just like all the rest of them. Bitcoin isn't the party of red or blue. It's the party of orange, which makes me want to freaking throw up every time I hear Simply Bitcoin say that because they only say that whenever a Republican is pro-Bitcoin or a Democrat is anti-Bitcoin, which is all the freaking time. The only Democrat who's ever come out staunchly, firmly supporting Bitcoin, who says all the right things, left the Democrat party and is running for the president of the United States as an independent because he said the party left him. Um, and that, you know, of course, is RFK Jr. So, you know, this isn't a political show, but damn it, these sides are lining up here. And the side on the left is consistently anti-Bitcoin and pro-CBDC. And it's a no-brainer because the party on the left, at least as the way the United States understands left and right, because some countries, conservative and liberal, mean different things. But in the United States, leftism is Marxist, it's socialist, it's communist. And that's what a CBDC is. CBDC is about control. Conservatism, in theory, not necessarily in practice, because all politicians are liars, and you have people claiming they are what they're not. There's people that are Democrats who probably believe what Republicans should believe, but don't say it because they, they want to get elected. They're from California, whatever, and so they toe the line. Likewise, there's rhinos, which stands for Republican in name only, which are not conservatives, which are not liberals as far as the classical liberalism goes, which means freedom. Like we are, I consider myself a classical liberal, but not an American liberal. An American liberal doesn't mean anything about freedom at all. It means liberalism, liberal amounts of spending as in total government control. Those people are going to be very pro-CBDC because that's what CBDCs are. They're 100% about controlling you and your money. So enough of this BS about saying Bitcoin isn't about the party of red or party of blue. It's about the party of orange. Bitcoin is truly for everybody. Anybody, meaning anybody can use Bitcoin. But when the parties are lining up against Bitcoin and they're all on one side, you can't put the blinders on. You have to see that the, in the United States, the Democrat Party is trying their best to rein in Bitcoin, to control Bitcoin. They're letting Elizabeth Warren spearhead this. That is representative of where their party officially stands. So maybe Trump is a liar. Maybe he's a bad guy. But he came out and said he's anti-CBDC. And you got to take him at his word. Uh, who knows? Most likely, he's going to be the next president of the United States. If you uh, if you if you look at the fact that Joe Biden is widely disdained in this country, he was disdained in this country before he got elected president. I have a lot of friends. I I, I come from, I, I've lived in multiple states. One of the places I lived was in New Mexico, which is a very liberal state, very left state, lots of socialists and leftists. New Mexico is weird because you have. You've got like the MAGA rancher types that, you know, riding, riding horses, the shotguns in their truck, kind of the, the old West cowboy, John Wayne type, you know, uh, and, and they're out there on their ranches. But in the cities, you have a lot of leftists. All the big cities in the state are run by Democrats, run by, run by leftists. And, the, and everywhere in the United States in general, the teachers unions are like that. But in New Mexico, it's as bad or worse than California. And I have a lot of friends that are teachers in New Mexico. And I was talking about the different candidates with them or listening to what they had to say on social media. And during the primaries, before we knew Biden was going to be the nominee, none of them supported Joe Biden. In fact, one of the teachers I'm not going to name just pointed out she there's no way she's going to be able to vote for this creepy, rapey, creepy, rapey. Those are her words. Creepy, rapey Joe Biden. Uh, she was going to vote for uh, I think it was Tulsi, Tulsi Gabbard. 
And then, of course, when it became Biden, they voted for Biden because they toe the party line. But the point being, he's not even popular with his within his own party. Just he got the vote from Democrats because Democrats vote Democrat, Republicans vote Republican usually. Uh, that That's just the way it works. You know, you hold your nose and vote, which is why a lot of people think that RFK Jr. is going to be a big disruptor. Because I mean, how do they get off in politics? I guess because it's, politicians are lining up either for or against Bitcoin. Uh, the media is trying to say RFK is going to steal votes away from Republicans or from Donald Trump because uh, people don't like Donald Trump, but they don't want to vote for Biden. So they'll vote for a third party. I think my friends who are lifelong Democrats, and I count a lot of family members in that, that held their nose and voted for Joe Biden and would absolutely hold their nose and vote for Joe Biden again. Have an out. It's the escape hatch like Bitcoin. You know, Christine Lagarde says Bitcoin's an escape hatch. And if people have an escape hatch, they'll use it. I think RFK Jr. is that escape hatch. I think he is going to do to Joe Biden what Ross Perot did to George Bush. Uh, and then later, uh, again, when he ran as an independent and stole 10% of the vote from the Republicans. And that let, um, that let Bill Clinton get elected as president of the United States with significantly less than half of the vote two times in a row. I don't remember what the percentage was, but it was something like 46% of the country only voted for Bill Clinton. But he was able to win because there were three candidates running. This shouldn't seem odd to you at all if you're from Europe where you have like nine candidate, nine parties running or whatever country you're from. You at least have the Green Party or whatever and the Worker Party, whatever. You have multiple parties running, so you end up with a coalition government because nobody gets more than 20 or 30% of the vote. That kind of thing happened in the United States twice when Clinton was running, and it could happen again because I know a lot of good people that are Democrats, and it's not because they're communists. It's because... They're old school Democrats, which in the United States used to meant the worker. The Republican Party was the rich country club type. And the, the if you were a mechanic or a farmer, and, and I have a lot of farming family members from Iowa, et cetera, uh, or, or carpenters union, union workers were all Democrats. And uh, and that obviously, you know, Hillary Clinton went to the unions and went to the coal miners and said, we're going to put you out of business. We're going to put a lot of you out of business, she said. So the Democrats have thrown away that base. They still vote Democrat largely, but I think they're going to hold their nose and vote for RFK Jr. Now, the question is, are there enough independents and maybe some Republicans that don't want, you know, the never Trumpers that are going to turn and vote for RFK Jr. that we might end up with an RFK Jr. as president? Maybe. I think if you had to put the money on it, my money would be that Trump is reelected. Um, and, you know, the government continues on. I think if Trump is reelected, I don't think he saves the country. I think Maybe we get four more years where just nothing happens. And if nothing happens, nothing bad happens. So uh, that's the way I see it. But my point being, the parties are currently lining up either pro or anti-Bitcoin. And at least a Trump administration is saying right now they're going to be anti-CBDC. Maybe not pro-Bitcoin, but they're not going to force a CBDC on us. If Biden's reelected, you can continue to see... You can continue to expect to see Bitcoin crack down on and you can continue to see, continue to see us marching towards the CBDC. Maybe that happens with Donald Trump. Maybe it doesn't, but at least he's not claiming it as a campaign issue. He's not, he's not telling you he's going to do it. Okay, I'm going to get back onto Bitcoin because this is a Bitcoin podcast and we still got to make our stack. One other thing I heard this morning was on Cafe Bitcoin, they were talking about brain fingerprinting and how it's going to be used to extract your seed words one day. And I think they were talking about this because of Neuralink. The BS FUD around brain fingerprinting is just that. You cannot extract someone's private keys with brain fingerprinting. I know what brain fingerprinting is. 
I have been exposed to brand fingerprinting. I haven't had it done on me, but I've been trained on it. I know what brain fingerprinting is. It's a very useful tool in law enforcement. Maybe not admissible in a court of law in most states yet, but then again, neither is the polygraph. The polygraph or the lie detector test are very useful because, well, because basically I can convince you if I'm interviewing me, I can convince you that I know you're lying and it's more likely to get you to tell me the truth, right? Brain fingerprinting is very similar, but it's a little more scientific. Brain fingerprinting basically says they're monitoring your brain waves. And uh, let's look at it. Let's talk about a, a crime scene. Let's say there's a crime scene that uh, somebody finds a body in the woods. It's a murder. And there's some evidence. Maybe there's a knife or a gun or saying something laying next to the body. And the only people who have seen that crime scene are the bad guy who did it, the police officers and that, that investigated, the detectives that investigated it, and maybe the witness that found it, the person walking their dog that stumbled upon it. If you put any of those on a brain fingerprinting device and you show them a picture of the crime scene, it will light up a very specific portion of their brain activity, and that will mean they've seen this before. If they've never seen it before, it's just a horrifying picture, it will signal a different portion of their brain. And that's what brain fingerprinting is. So it's very useful if I think you're the suspect, I think you're the murderer, and I put you on a brain fingerprinting machine while I'm interviewing you, I show you a picture of the crime scene that no one's seen. This is important. It has to be something no one's seen. Part of the reason the police don't release most of what they know about a case. The media always says the police don't have no leads. Well, that's not true. The police just haven't told the media. But the point being with brain fingerprinting, if I'm interviewing somebody and they're the suspect and I show them the picture of the crime scene, it's going to light up probably. Uh, indicating they, 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 there's recognition. This is familiar to them. And you can use that as a tool. You can't convict somebody in court saying, aha, they saw it. You know, this is just, it's pseudoscience in many ways. But then the detective can ratchet down and say, okay, we just ran you through this new brain lie detector. How do you think you did? And the suspect being a sociopath will probably say, I did fantastic because I'm not, I'm not guilty. But an average normal person is inherently a truthful person. Even though they don't want to get in trouble and they're scared, uh, their gut, their human nature is to not lie. Uh, so they're going to buckle, probably, and they're going to admit that they, they know they got caught. Uh, and then you get a confession. And that's why brain fingerprinting is useful. Brain fingerprinting cannot extract your seed words. If I wrote down on a paper, let's say one of your seed words is goulash or sasquatch, and I write sasquatch on a paper and I hold it up to you, it may very well trigger that you that that's familiar, but that doesn't mean it's one of your seed words. And let's say I successfully write down 24 words and you flash that you recognize all of them. Probably it's because you freaking speak English. But even if it isn't, let's say that I'm able to ascertain that these are 24 words that are seed words. I still don't know what order they're in. They might come from different wallets, you know, different seed phrases. There's just no way to use brain fingerprinting to extract your seed words. It's FUD. Until you could decode the human brain as an actual language and download someone's memory, that this is just not going to happen. And personally, I don't think you're ever going to be able to do that because the brain doesn't communicate in a protocol language. The brain is a collection of neurons and it's in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways like a processing chip where certain gateways open and close and they can send messages. But a computer then uses that as a language to encode data and to store it or to process it. And a human brain may do that as well, but there's other things we don't understand about how the human brain does that. It's not just zero one zero one one zero zero one, and you can decode that into, you know, an actual language. So, 
Don't worry about brain fingerprinting. It's BS. If you get arrested for a crime, I'm not an attorney. This is not legal advice. Um, but it's no more, it's no more effective than a lie detector test, which is, which is also BS. I mean, it's a very useful tool, but it's, it's, it's pseudoscience. It doesn't, it doesn't do what the media think tells you. It doesn't do what that Hollywood tells you it can do. And neither does brain fingerprinting. All right. As I mentioned, we're coming up on the having, and I'm talking about FUD anyway. So on social media, it is time for the having FUD. Usually that involves the minor death spiral FUD. I haven't heard a whole lot about that, but what I have heard are the two branches of thought that the having's going to do one of two things. It's either going to lead to the super cycle where Bitcoin never crashes and it goes up forever, which is, you know, last three havings, two havings, whatever that that's been the, what people have claimed, or you get the diminishing returns believers. And what diminishing returns means is that every cycle, the having has become less and less important because going from 25 to 12 is, is more of a, or 50 to 25 is, is a greater difference than going from 25 to 12 or 12 to six. And, uh, and they've got some data that they used to say that for example, um, on Reddit earlier today, a user peach dash five, five, five posted. Let's see. Second having 56 times larger than the first third, having 13 times larger than the second. If the pattern holds, which it probably won't, the fourth having should be 3.1 times larger than the third, just under $30,000. So basically what that means is we've seen, you know, the Bitcoin 56 X and then at 13 X or whatever. And that, 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 that is a smaller percentage each time. But what we're not taking into account was that the 2020 having happened during the pandemic and the global lockdown and the, and the global recession, the crushing mom and pa businesses. Sure. Later people got stimmy checks. Everybody got a thousand dollars to spend or whatever. But the fact of the matter is the economies were crushed. People were living off their savings. People were racking up credit cards. They weren't in the mood to learn about Bitcoin. If you were a Bitcoiner like me or like, you know, Adam Meister, who famously at the, at the low bought two Bitcoin for 10 grand, uh, anticipating the stimmy checks and likes to brag about that. Sure. You did great. But the normies were in no mood to learn about Bitcoin, especially since there was that, that shenanigans with Elon Musk pumping and then taunting Dogecoin. And there's always some sort of thing, but basically 2020 was not a normal year when it comes to anything let alone Bitcoin. If you look at the last hundred years of human history, that was the only 2020 in the last hundred years. You have to go back to the Spanish flu, you know, or whatever to, uh, to get anything even remotely like that. Uh, And that was over a hundred years ago. So it was an outlier. I don't think you can take the data from 2020 and say that that's what the next couple having is going to be like. The other thing that doesn't take into effect are the money has changed. You know, the ETFs are available now. There's Companies like MicroStrategy that have come along and made Bitcoin part of their treasury or all of their treasury. There's countries like El Salvador that have adopted Bitcoin. And when the price pumps and they look like geniuses, more companies are going to want to emulate MicroStrategy and more more countries are going to want to emulate El Salvador. The point being, we still have a very small percentage of the world population who's been exposed to Bitcoin, but the big money is now exposed to Bitcoin. Do I think we're going to get the super cycle and Bitcoin's not going to retrace? No, I don't. And the reason I think that is because human nature, it's, hum, it's human nature for this to go, to, go, to go bigger than it will. Maybe we won't crash as hard as we have the previous couple cycles because the, you know, the institutions are going to be less likely to panic sell or whatever, but, but that remains to be seen. Even institutions are governed by people and people are subject to human nature. So I think as long as humans are human, 
They're going to get excited. They're going to be more exuberance. The price of Bitcoin is going to pump higher than it should. And if that happens, what goes up must come down. So I think we'll see some kind of retracement. Am I confident enough in that prediction to know when the top is going to occur and when the bottom is going to be? So I sell at the top and then try and buy more Bitcoin back at the bottom? No, I'm not. I think that's a really bad idea. And that is why I'm a proponent of dollar cost averaging. And speaking of dollar cost averaging, let's get to the reason why we are here today. We're here because it's DCA Wednesday. And you might not know what DCA Wednesday means if you've never tuned in before, if this is the first time listening to us. Well, DCA Wednesday, well, DCA is short for dollar cost averaging. And dollar cost averaging is an investment strategy where you invest your money in equal portions at regular intervals, regardless of price. As I alluded to, we're going to keep stacking regardless what the price is. For example, this is going to be our 132nd stack. We started our equal portion. Uh, I chose our equal portion to be just $20, and I did so because I wanted to choose an amount that almost anyone listening should comfortably be able to come up with on a weekly basis. And we chose weekly because that's a pretty standard time frame for most people who DCA in any investment. Uh, usually people tend to DCA on their payday. So if you get paid weekly, that can be weekly on Friday or bi-weekly on Friday or, or whatever. That's a you do you thing. The point being that you, you invest a equal portion and you do so regularly and you do it without regard to price. It doesn't mean you don't buy the dip if there's a really great deal with some dry powder. I buy the dip. We don't include those purchases in this podcast because this podcast is about DCA. So far during those 132, 131 stacks, we've converted $2,620 worth of fiat into 8,815,892 sats. I have no idea what that noise is out there. It's making it through my insulation in my studio. I can't tell if there's a really loud airplane or if that's a lawnmower. Sounds like a lawnmower. Someone must be mowing the studio. I can hear it bleeding through my noise canceling too. So I apologize for that. Maybe I'll be able to clean that up in post-production. And they're getting closer. How annoying. Earlier, there was someone working in the street with a jackhammer. So I'm actually recording later than I wanted to because they're... Yeah, that's horrible. Maybe I should do a Marty Bent and tell him, hey, if you stop mowing, I'll mow for you when I get done with the podcast. I remember when Marty Bent was recording out of his uh, father-in-law's bedroom on the Jersey Shore, part of the pandemic thing. They moved out of New York and they moved into the in-laws. And then right as he started recording his... His uh, rabbit hole recap with Matt O'Dell, the, the neighbor started mowing his lawn. So he offered to mow the neighbor's lawn if he'd stop, and he did. So that's kind of funny. Um, I'm almost at the end of this podcast, though, so maybe I won't have to go mow someone else's lawn, especially since he's paying someone to do it. Yeah, they have a lawn service, so it's not even the neighbor. Anyway, we converted $2,620 into 8815892 sats. We did so at an average purchase price of just $29,719.06. So I think we've already shown the usefulness of dollar cost averaging because that is obviously significantly cheaper than what Bitcoin's currently priced at. Today, we're going to grow that stack. As usual, we grow our stack using the Cash App. I like the Cash App more than I like that lawnmower outside the studio because despite the fact the Cash App charges a significantly higher fee than a lot of uh, other exchanges out there. The one thing they will let me do is transfer my Bitcoin to my hardware wallet for free. So with mining fees being a little more expensive, the 45 cents in uh, fees, which is about what two and a quarter percent of $20 is, is going to be more than made up for the fact that later we're going to consolidate that Bitcoin into our hardware wallet and and, and not pay uh, a mining fee. So you do you pick a, pick a, a, a service, an app, a 
a exchange that meets your needs. Obviously, do some research on this. Do not use a fly-by-night exchange that nobody's heard of. Use one of the big ones. Uh, that'll tend to make it a little safer, but the only thing that can ultimately make your stack safe is by getting it off of the exchange and into your own hardware wallet. So while the neighbor's lawn service mows next to the studio, I've opened up the Cash App. I already have $20 in there because I I had a, uh, I had a couple of things I needed to do on Cash App. So I'm tapping on Bitcoin, tapping buy, entering $20, and boom! Just like that, we've purchased another 45,103 sats. That is obviously less, fewer sats than we got last week. Last week we got 49,065 sats, so almost 400 sats fewer for our purchase. As the price of Bitcoin goes up, that's just the thing that's going to happen. But the nice thing about DCAing is we bought all the way up to the all-time high, and we bought all the way down to the low. So we're catching the highs and the lows, but we're averaging out in a manner where uh, our current cost basis now with this purchase is up to $29,793.45. This purchase increased it by $74.39. We're closing in on that $30,000 average cost price, uh, average cost basis, but the current price of Bitcoin is $43,345. So $29,000 is not too shabby. Obviously, as Bitcoin gets more expensive, our average cost basis is going to continue to increase. But ideally, we're always going to be better off than had we YOLO'd in. And I think we already proved that because the first DCA Wednesday episode, the price of Bitcoin was over $39,000. So had we YOLO'd in on that day, even though that was two and a half years ago, uh, we'd have significantly fewer sats and our purchase, average purchase price would be $10,000 more at $39,716 instead of just $29,793. All right, before I wrap this up and let the neighbor's lawn service finish mowing near the pot, uh, nearing the studio, I do want to ask you to help support the podcast, and I'm not asking for money. What I am asking for, well, obviously you can support the podcast directly through Podcasting 2.0 on Fountain, like, like Leggy did, for example. But one of the other really, really helpful ways you can support this podcast is by feeding the algorithm monster. As I mentioned in the intro, you can do that by making sure automatic downloads are enabled, that this podcast is queued up on whatever podcast app you're using. But perhaps even more importantly, if you rate or review this podcast, that helps bump it up in the algorithm to help more people, uh, to help this podcast be featured for more people, hopefully exposed to more people, help us orange peel more people. Likewise, on Twitter, the podcast Twitter handle is at BTC Bulletin Pod at BTC Bulletin Pod. Now, I do love to hear from you, so please send me a DM and reach out to us on Twitter and let me know what you think about the podcast, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. But more importantly, just subscribing, uh, a following. We don't, we're not a subscription basis like a lot of people are now, but just following us on Twitter, at BTC Bulletin Pod. We increase the number of followers. It'll increase the frequency that our, that our tweets are seen or featured uh, when people are scrolling through their Twitter feed. And that'll help us orange pill more people because, you know, we tweet about the podcast. And of course, if you do want to uh, support us financially, you can do so, as I mentioned, through Podcasting 2.0 with a boost or a shout out. But you can also tip us on Twitter. There is a Spotify support link that you can click on in the show notes as well. Uh, or we have several referral notes, referral codes in the show notes. For example, we use Cash App and they're not a sponsor of the show. But if you like the idea of using Cash App and you're not already using it, if you click on that referral link, 
Uh, you'll get $5 free for signing up and the podcast will get five bucks free as well. So you'll actually get paid to help support the podcast. And there's some other referral codes in the show notes as well for other services that I find useful that are not sponsors as well. Anybody that uses these services like Fold or Strike or Cash App, uh, you'll get your own referral code that you could share with family, friends, et cetera, and, and help expose them to Bitcoin as well and maybe earn some free, free Satoshis for doing so as well. So uh, that's about that. Again, don't forget to follow us at BTC Bulletin Pod on Twitter. If you are not on Twitter, we are also on Noster, although not as often as I should be. Their NPUB is in the show notes. And if you're neither on Twitter or Noster, you can always send me an email. My email is bitcoinbulletin at protonmail.com. Either way, don't forget to join us next Wednesday and every Wednesday while we grow that stack while people are still silly enough to sell us sats for fiat. But until that time, keep on stacking those sats, you sexy sat stackers.